Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him, send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow co-worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word. Good evening. You can take a seat. Welcome. We are so glad that you are here, especially if it is your first time with us. Uh, We're glad that you chose to worship with us. As Hannah just read, we are going through the book of Philippians, kind of section by section. And in just a moment, we will jump into the scripture. Uh, First, I just want to assure you that I'm not going to start tonight with any jokes about how we're better Christians than people at home watching the Super Bowl. Um, Not going to start that way. Don't want to throw shade on people that aren't here. But we are glad that you are here. And as you all know, I skipped church two years ago to root for the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. So I'm right there with them. So um, we are going through Philippians. And tonight's a little different. Uh, Tonight is different because we are taking a big chunk, as Hannah can testify to. She had a big chunk to read with names in it. I didn't do her any favors with that, but it's a long section. Another thing that's different about this section is that it's really a narrative. It tells a story. And the reason for that is that tonight, instead of Paul telling us what our identity is and telling us what a citizen of heaven looks like, he is going to show us. He's going to write a narrative, tell a narrative, and he is going to show us what a citizen of heaven looks like by using his own example, as well as the example of these two men mentioned in the passage. John, is my mic not working? Is it working? Okay. I can't hear myself. It's weird. Okay. So as we jump in tonight, I'd like us to start in prayer. Would you pray with me and for me? Father, thank you so much for this opportunity tonight. Thank you that you speak to us through your word and your spirit and your people. God, we pray that tonight you would say exactly what you would want to say and that we would have willing ears to listen and minds that understand and hearts that believe and hands and feet ready to obey you. Father, we pray that you would show us very specifically what each one of us needs to hear tonight and that you would do the speaking. God, I pray that you would take my humble, feeble words, and that you would use them for something bigger than any of us. In Jesus' name, amen. We instinctively all want to be a part of something bigger and longer lasting than ourselves. But if you're like me, you get caught up in the everyday life, and you start to 
want experiences and pleasures and happiness, and you want to make the most of each opportunity that you get. And the reason is that instead of thinking about our legacy, instead of thinking about things that will last, we may think about those things, but we end up acting out something very different. We end up acting out a principle of this world, and it can be found in these two hashtags. Now, if you don't know what these mean, they mean you only live once and the fear of missing out. So while we instinctively want to be a part of something long-lasting, we end up acting according to these principles, these ideas. Well, you only live once, and I'm afraid I'm going to miss out on something, so I'm going to squeeze the life out of every single opportunity that I have to experience happiness or pleasure or peace. Instead of living for our legacy, we try to squeeze the fun out of every single weekend or every single day that we have off or every single summer or every single break that we have from our kids. We try to squeeze the life out of every opportunity because we're afraid we're going to miss out. And we know we only have one life to live and we want to make the most of it. This principle, along with the idea of we really do want to build a lasting legacy, are at odds with one another And they affect our behavior and they affect our actions and the things that we do and the way that we spend our life and the way that we spend our time. These things slip into not just our use of social media, but they slip into our discipleship. The way that we become disciples and the way that we make disciples are impacted by this reality. That we know we're made for something longer lasting than us fruit that lasts for generations, and we read it in scripture that that's what we're supposed to be a part of, yet we're caught up in this need to take advantage of every opportunity and squeeze every bit of happiness and pleasure we can out of each moment of life. Tonight, Paul is going to show us what a life lived differently looks like. The scripture for tonight gives us the wisdom into what a ministry, legacy, and life looks like that really Lasts. And again, Paul is going to show us what it looks like. To this point, he's been telling us what a citizen of heaven looks like, but now he's going to show us through his life, Timothy's life, and Epaphroditus' life. Because this is a different kind of scripture, we need to study it, and I need to teach it differently. So instead of going verse by verse and talking about each thing that Paul is talking about, we are going to look at three themes, and we're going to make some observations as we look at the text, and we're going to look at three themes that jump off the page as we look at this narrative. I would encourage you to open up your Bible tonight. There's not going to be scripture up on the screen from Philippians, so I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Philippians 2. We'll take a look at verses 19 through 30, which Hannah just read for us. And as we read through those, we see three main observations. First, we see Paul's affection for the church. We see Paul's affection for the church. Look with me at verse 22 of chapter 2. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. He uses this familial language when talking about Timothy. Let's see what he has to say about Epaphroditus in verses 25 and 26. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother 
and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard, you heard that he was ill. He uses this familial language. He uses this word, a fellow messenger and a soldier. You hear here that he is longing. Epaphroditus is longing to go back to his church family in Philippi. And then look with me at verse 28. Paul talks about his own desire. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. He has an anxiety about the well-being of Epaphroditus and the church in Philippi. You see here Paul's affection that he has for these people. This familial language. In chapter 1, he talked about being of one mind, of one spirit, of one soul, one heart. Paul feels an affection and a connection with the church, with his fellow workers that he is serving with, that is much more affection than you feel for someone that you just go to the same church with. It's not just that all these people end up saying, proclaiming the same religion, or that they all go to the same building every week. The fact is that there is something tying them together that is making them affectionate towards one another in a way that we are supposed to experience if we are part of the body of Christ. The principle we see here is that citizens of heaven love other citizens of heaven well. They have an affection, a connection. Their well-being is determined by and affected by the well-being of the rest of the church. It's not just about how they feel about things or how their life is going, but they are connected to their brothers and sisters in Christ in a way where they feel like their well-being is affected by someone else's well-being. They rejoice with those who rejoice. They mourn with those who mourn. Paul is showing us what citizens of heaven look like. They have an affection for one another. The next observation that we make is their ministry motivation. What is their motivation for ministry? We're going to see that each of these men went through some very difficult things. First, let's look at Timothy in verse 20. For I have no one like him, meaning Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. He is motivated by something else. We learn a little bit about Timothy from the Bible and history. Timothy was from modern-day Turkey. He had a Jewish parent and a Greek parent, and he left his family in Turkey in order to follow Paul, who was following Jesus, to go and to be a pastor that helped Paul in planting churches. He left everything that he knew just like we talked about last week, we, he counted the cost. He set aside everything that he knew in order to be a part of what Paul was doing all over the known world. Let's look at Epaphroditus. Verse 27. Indeed, Epaphroditus was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul mentions three times that Epaphroditus was ill, very ill, and near death. 
one commentator said he really wanted them to know that Epaphroditus really almost died. He was so ill. See, here's what happened. Epaphroditus was a part of the church in Philippi. He was from Philippi. He was a part of the church. And the church in Philippi wanted to send financial resources with him because that's one of the reasons Paul is writing this letter. He says, we're partners in the gospel and I'd like you to support this other church planting network that's going on. And so Philippi wants to be a part of that, the church in Philippi who is planted by Paul. So they send Epaphroditus with the finances and they also send Epaphroditus to stay and be with Paul and minister to Paul in any way that he can because Paul is in prison. So if Paul, by the grace of God, is let out of prison, Epaphroditus is supposed to be there to take care of him. Epaphroditus gets there, and Paul says, I want you to go back. We read that in this this narrative too. I want you to go back to the church. I have everything that I need. I'd rather you go back. But something delays him, and it's this illness. He gets sick, and he almost dies. And then Paul writing this letter like he did so much of the New Testament from prison. What would motivate Paul while he is in prison to write and encourage these churches? And not only so, but again, he tells them, rejoice because I'm in prison. I am rejoicing because I am worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. What is motivating these men to go through such extreme hardships, to leave family, to leave the city where they've grown up, to leave the trade that they were trained in as a child, to go to prison? What is leading them to live this way? They have a motivation that is driving them, that is bigger than any emotion could drive us, bigger than any career that God would call us to, there is a calling on their life. And that calling is that they really believe that Jesus was who he says he was and that he really rose from the dead and that he really sent his spirit and he's really sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's really coming back someday. And so They are obeying Jesus' words to go and make disciples of all nations. And they know that if they don't leave father and mother, they don't leave wherever they're from, they don't go and follow Christ wherever he calls them to go, even to the point of death, that they will never make disciples of all nations. Something is motivating their journey. Next, we see a little bit about Paul's ministry strategy. We can over-spiritualize things sometimes and say, well, the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost and then there was just churches everywhere. It was a little bit more complicated than that. It was complicated in a number of ways because to this point, it was mostly just Jews with a handful of Gentiles that knew Jesus. So there had to be churches set up all over the place. There were thousands of people coming to Christ every day that had to be discipled. There were these new churches starting up. They were starting in unconventional ways. These churches, you remember how Philippi was started? We read about it in Acts 16. It was started by people from all different socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds that had no ministry or biblical training whatsoever, that were not Jews, that said, I'm going to start following Jesus, and they started a church. These churches were not planted by people who had been to seminary. These churches were planted by the Holy Spirit as he did a work and as disciples made disciples. There was a ministry strategy compelling 
their behaviors. Paul knew that his time was short. Because even if he was let out of prison by Nero this time, he knew his time was short. See, Paul knew very early on that he was not going to retire an old man and play golf until he died in Florida. Paul knew that eventually he would not be let free and he would be executed for the cause of Christ. That was the path he was on and he anticipated it. He knows that his time is short. The easiest thing that Paul could have done, the safest thing that Paul could have done is set up a church in Jerusalem for Jewish guys. Or to plant churches like Philippi and become the first Baptist church of Philippi and been their senior pastor until the day he retired with a nice fat pension. But that's not what Paul does. Paul wasn't trying to make a name for himself. He wasn't trying to grow the church through a church growth movement. If Paul would have stayed in one place, he could have made a big church. Because Paul was a pretty good preacher. He was a pretty good apostle. He was pretty good at making disciples. And people would have come from everywhere. But Paul wasn't trying to plant a little C church. He was trying to build the church of God and make disciples of all nations. Paul could have kept Epaphroditus with him and said, I want you to stay here and minister to my needs, but no, he sent him back to benefit the church in Philippi. Paul was about doing ministry and ministry that lasted, that he knew would have an exponential generational growth even after his passing. Paul had a pragmatic reason for this and a biblical reason for this. The pragmatic reason was because he knew his time was short. The biblical reason was this is what it looks like to go and make disciples of all nations. If we are really called to go and make disciples of all nations, and if we are to do what the Bible commands us to do, it's not going to be accomplished in your lifetime or my lifetime. Or our kids' lifetime. It's going to be accomplished down the road sometime, whenever Jesus should come back. So we are supposed to do ministry, and we are supposed to make disciples, and we are supposed to build lives that don't just rely on us. That's the kind of ministry that Paul is doing. This is an important word for us here at Grace Community Church. There's a pragmatic reason And there's a biblical reason. The pragmatic reason is that our leaders usually stay in downtown Iowa City for up to two years. People are constantly coming and going from Grace downtown because not many people are actually from here. They're here for a short time. They come and they get their education or work for a little while and then they move on to the next place. It's important that we don't just think think about making this church numerically bigger, but we talk about making disciples who make disciples for the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Because we are consistently sending people literally to the ends of the earth. And we have a short time with them. And we need to make sure that we are doing ministry in a way that will last, that will be exponential, that will grow beyond what we would ever ask or imagine. The biblical reason is the same reason that Paul had. We are called to go and make disciples of all 
nations. We are not called to make this church numerically bigger. We are not called to make a church of our liking and based on our preferences that we like to go to. It's about making disciples who make disciples for the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Paul writes a letter to Timothy. If you want to turn quick to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, Paul tells Timothy what ministry looks like that is exponential. There are two things that I want to point out in this text. So 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The first thing I want to observe and point out from this is look at the exponential effect. Paul instructs Timothy, this young pastor, to entrust the gospel to many people first— but then start to equip others who will be able to train others who will be able to train others. He doesn't just say have a big preaching ministry where lots of people come. He doesn't say just mentor a certain group of people or equip a certain group of people. He's talking about equipping the whole church. So an exponential thing happens. So disciples make disciples. The second thing that I want to point out is that I am willing to bet in every translation that you have in front of you, it says, entrust the gospel to faithful men. But that's not what Paul wrote. He said, entrust the gospel to faithful people. He uses the word people. Because from the beginning of Paul's ministry and throughout his writings, he is equipping men and women to teach the church. And here at Grace Community Church, we believe that God has called men to be pastors and men to do the primary teaching in the church from the pulpit. But if we are going to do ministry the way Paul did, then we are going to equip the whole church to teach the church to do the work of ministry. And one of the reasons the church has been limited in its impact in discipleship is that we have not equipped women to teach the word. Paul says here to entrust the gospel to faithful people who will teach others. There's a whole sermon coming about that because Paul addresses it three times in Philippians. Women teaching and leading out for the gospel. So more to come on that. Paul here is saying invest the gospel in those who are humble, available, and teachable. Share the gospel and disciple those who are humble, available, and teachable. So, what does a life, a ministry, and a legacy look like that lasts? What does a life, ministry, and legacy look like that lasts? Or, how do we make disciples who make disciples? Our vision here at Grace Community Church is to glorify God by being and making disciples for the glory of God. So how do we make disciples who make disciples? It's built in there into our vision. We're not just about making disciples because we believe that you have not made a disciple until they can make a disciple. And our focus very much needs to be on making sure that we are making disciples who make disciples. That means the whole church discipling the church 
who are making more disciples and discipling them. That means everyone who is in Christ, everyone who is a citizen of heaven, looking to make disciples who make disciples. So how do we do that? First, we need the right mind. We need the right mind. We need to make sure that our theology is good and right and biblical. See, a lot of things build our theology. Your church background, whatever church you went to, if you grew up going to church, your experiences that you have experienced in the church and outside of the church, what you've experienced in your family of origin, the ways that you have suffered, the ways that you have sinned, the way that others have sinned against you, these all affect and impact your theology, your own personality, your Enneagram number, your Myers-Briggs, your right-handed or left-handed, your artistic or analytical, all those things impact your theology. Your environment impacts your theology. What kind of church you go to, the city that you live in, the family that you live in, the, the home you live in now, all of those environmental factors affect your theology. Our theology needs to come from the Bible. Our theology needs to come from the Bible. We cannot be a disciple and we cannot make disciples if our theology comes from anywhere else. One of the problems that we have in the modern day church with all our access to knowledge is that we have all kinds of knowledge and all kinds of man and woman's idea on theology and we are largely biblically emaciated. We don't get in the word for ourselves. We need to make sure that we are getting our theology from the Bible. In order to do that, we need to get equipped. We need to get equipped. We need to get in the word for ourselves. We need to get a plan for reading through scripture. We need to let God disciple and equip us through the word, the spirit, and his people. We need to make a plan for ourselves. We need to make a plan for ourselves of how we are going to be discipled. In the weekly email this week, I'm going to send out a very short video that's just three, four, five minutes max that just talks about what it looks like to pursue your own personal discipleship. Finding a spiritual growth plan, finding a Bible reading plan. I just found a course that I've been looking for for a long time going through the book of Amos. And this spring, I'm going to go through the book of Amos. It's an online course that you can take for free, and it goes through Amos, and it talks about what biblical justice looks like. I would love for others to take that with me. I sought that out because I feel like I want to learn more about this. We need to do that, and we need to let others equip and disciple us as well. It's not a solo sport. It's not an individual sport. Being a disciple and making disciples happens in the context of relationships with other people. Look at the book of Philippians. Look at any book in the New Testament and try to obey it without living in community. You really can't. Because Paul is writing to communities, telling them how to be communities. We're supposed to read it in community and then we're supposed to obey it in community. So if we're trying to do it on our own, something is going to be missing. So first, we have to have the right mind. Next, I have no idea what time it is. Is it Super Bowl halftime yet? Okay, we're good. 
right motivations, right motivations. We have to have the right motivation for ministry. I don't have time to get into all the bad motivations we can have to be good Christians or to look like citizens of heaven or to try to be and make disciples, but there's lots of bad motivations. We need to make sure that we have the right motivation. The word priority, priority, has been in the English language as long as the English language has existed. It has been written about, sang about, put down on paper since the year 1400, the word priority. And for 500 years, it remained a singular word with no plural form, priority. Then sometime in the 1900s, we started making it plural and saying we could have multiple priorities. Not only is it a misnomer, it's killing us. It's killing us. We are drowning with so many priorities. We spend all of our time trying to be good and be right and be what we need to be and have the energy for all these different roles in our life. A student, a parent, uh, a child, uh, a staff person, our job, all these different roles, all these different things, and we keep adding priorities. And it's killing us. It's making us exhausted and it's making us miss the priority. The priority is being and making disciples for the glory of God. We do all those other things and have all those other roles to serve the one priority. When we lose track of that, we are going to feel like something is missing and we're going to be exhausted. We live way too much of our life living that way. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. This is the words of Paul. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul is hard pressed between two things. To stay and live a fruitful life and keep seeing the church multiply or to go and be with Christ. Two things, the, the language here is, is hard to capture in one English word. It is both pressing and pulling. There is something pressing him and pulling him at the same time. He uses the same word in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says Christ's love compels us. It is both pushing us and pulling us. It is the motivation for our life. See, here's the thing. Paul is hard-pressed and also pulled apart by these two things that seem opposites, but the reason that he is is because he has one priority. And it is making disciples for the glory of God. And he knows that if he stays on this earth, he can keep glorifying God by multiplying the church, but if he dies, he can go and glorify God forever in eternity. His priority is glorifying God. That's why he is hard-pressed between these two realities and these two outcomes of his life. Christ's love is supposed to compel us, control us, press us, and pull us in a similar fashion. That we love Christ so much that he is our one priority and we will glorify him whatever 
it takes. By life or by death. C.S. Lewis calls death the last act of glorification. He is doing a work in us and our death brings us into glory. It's the last step in our sanctification. So we need the right motivation. This will lead us to right actions. Right actions. You probably know the word orthodoxy. This means right or righteous thought. The right or righteous thought. I want to introduce a new word to you if you haven't heard it before, and it's orthopraxy. You may have heard the praxis exam that teachers have to take. I started out at Kirkwood in the teaching program, and I was going to transition to the University of Iowa to go through the education program. That was so many stories ago, it's, it didn't happen. Let's just say that. But they would tell us, you need to take this test to prepare for the praxis exam. This is going to be on the praxis exam. The praxis exam is what you take to become a teacher at the end of your education program. The word praxis means practice. It is preparing you for something that you're practicing to be a teacher. Kind of a funny concept. You're practicing. So the word orthopraxy means right practice. Right practice. If we read scripture, it is crystal clear from page one to the end and from the beginning to the end of Jesus's ministry and all of Paul's writings and all the writings of the New Testament that we are to have a correct orthodoxy, a right thought that leads to an orthopraxy, a right practice. Actions based on what we believe is what we are called to. Actions based on what we believe. We are better at talking about discipleship than we are at actually being and making disciples. That's the point. It's easier to talk about. It's harder to do. This is living in light of what we believe. This is what we are called to. We are just talking about this. This past week in our elder meeting that Joe and Jeff and I, as your downtown elders, we so desire to make sure that we are calling the church not just to right thinking, but right practice in our actions. The right mind, right motivations leads to right actions, and this leads to being and making disciples. Being and making disciples. Here at Grace, we have three seasons of ministry, if you will. Three seasons of ministry. They really match the weather, but also the school calendar as well. During the winter, it's a season of getting rooted. Getting rooted in the gospel, where we get rooted in community, we get rooted in the gospel, we dig deeper into what the gospel means for our everyday lives. In the month of March, we will start to make a transition to an equipping season where we will be equipping you to go and make disciples. We will be equipping you. We'll go through a sermon series called Bless where we will talk about practical lifestyle friendship evangelism in our lives. We will have equipping classes that will help you be equipped to go and make disciples. We will start talking about being a member of the church. We'll talk about obeying Christ in baptism, we will talk about what it means to be equipped to be a disciple. The reason that that is an equipping season is that come about mid-July, first part of July, families, students, 
residents start moving to Iowa City, and that's when we start our welcoming phase, where we welcome people to town and we welcome them into our church. So we want to make sure that we are equipped to welcome them well and make more disciples. We are going to be talking about over the next couple of months with our community group leaders, what is a disciple and how do we make disciples who make disciples. This spring, you can expect to be equipped to dig deeper into your discipleship, but then also make disciples who make disciples. It's what we're called to do, and it's all for the glory of God. Whatever we are called to do, whatever role we have, whatever season of life, even seasons of suffering, we are called to glorify God. It is our priority, singular. So where are you right now? Are you suffering? As Bo said, some are suffering right now. Are you in a season of confusion? Are you in a season that's lonely? Are you in a season that's great? Are you in a season where you're preparing to go on to the next thing in life? What season are you in? What roles do you have? You are called to glorify God by being and making disciples. That's how we glorify God. So if it's with little kids, do it with little kids. Make that your priority. If it is studying, if it is working in a lab, running a lab, cleaning a lab, if it is entering into marriage, if it is experiencing singleness, if it is starting in the workforce, whatever you are called to, whatever roles you have now, make this your one priority. So how do we do it? Because I know I've made it sound easier than it really is here. We look to the greatest example of a citizen of heaven and his name was Jesus. And we see in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, what he did for us. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We can throw off every weight and every sin and everything that gets in our way by fixing our eyes on Jesus, because he went first. He, for the joy set before him, endured the cross for you and for me. Why was Jesus so torn that night in the garden of Gethsemane, saying to the Father, Father, is there any other way but not my will but yours be done? Why was he so hard-pressed and pulled apart by what God had called him to do? Because he was pressed and pulled by the same thing that pressed and pulled Paul Jesus was experiencing the ultimate life of glorifying God with every action of his life. Everything that he did glorified God. But he knew for the joy that was set before him was sharing in the Father's business and sharing in the Father's glory with you and with me. So Jesus went to the cross because he had a greater joy than his own comfort, than his own success, than his own safety. 
when we fix our eyes on Jesus, it changes everything. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, with Christ in view, our view of everything changes. No more you only live once or fear of missing out, but a right view of Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, shows us what he needs for us to do today, and he and his glory becomes our one priority. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that we can come to you. Holy be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is my prayer and desire tonight. Jesus, thank you that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. And Jesus, you paid our way into the kingdom of God. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for us. Thank you that you had a greater joy set before you. Thank you, Jesus, that you wanted to include us in the glory of the Father, in the relationship that you have had for all time with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus, may you be our one motivation, our one priority. Jesus, we want to be about your call to go and make disciples of all nations and be and make disciples for the glory of God. God, I pray that we would make this our call, our priority, and what our life is all about. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Just a couple of things in closing here. First off, if you are new here and you're not on our email list, we would love to include you. We're not going to spam you to death. We send one email out every week, a weekly email every Wednesday afternoon. We would love to include you in that just so you know what is going on. If you are already on our weekly email list, you know that we have a meal next week after the service. We are going to provide um, some sandwiches, catered sandwiches, but then we need some help people chipping in to bring sides, desserts, and drinks. So that information was in your email. If you'd like to join our email list, you can sign up a connection card on the offering box in the back. So please join us for that next week. Would you stand with me? Our desire is to obey God with our actions, not just with our minds, not just with our lips. That's why we end each service on our feet, communicating to God, our prayer to God, saying, we want our hands and feet to obey you this week. Would you pray with me to that end? Father, thank you for what you have called us to. We pray that you would empower us and strengthen us with everything that we need. Now may you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.